Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I'm Blake Dean, here with my co-host, Aaron Monez, and today we're excited to share our conversation with author and theologian, Christina Hitchcock. Dr. Hitchcock has her PhD from the University of Aberdeen. She's a professor of theology at the University of Sioux Falls in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where she has taught for more than 15 years. Her current research focuses on the intersection of theology and culture. She's the author of the 2018 book by Baker Publishing, The Significance of Singleness. Erin, what should listeners be listening for in this podcast? What are they going to hear? Oh, guys, this is one of those pieces of theology that we, we, we never talk about. And so I'm so excited for this conversation because if you've already been listening, we've talked to Carrie Miles about marriage and we've talked to Natalie Carnes about motherhood, but now we are going to talk about singleness and celibacy and things that the church just doesn't like to touch. And boy, does Christina Hitchcock go there. So what you're going to want to be listening for is she does a great sociological breakdown of how we view singleness in America and also, ironically, how we view it in the church, which is somewhat similar to how we view it in secular culture. And she's going to talk about where the church has really just kind of fallen into these lazy traps of thinking about singleness and celibacy kind of the same way that the world does and not making valuable distinctions, which is why so many of our singles are struggling so much. Um, So if you are a single person, uh, this is totally for you. But also, if you are a married person, this Mm -hmm. is totally for you. A, because we tend to live our lives in singleness actually quite a bit more than we do married, even if we have long, happy marriages. And two, there are single people in your life that need you to be educated on this. And um, and there are people that, that we love and care for that uh, need this good word because we've been getting it wrong. So listeners, you, I think, are going to be super excited about how equipped this will be. And just fun fact, we recorded, Dr. Hitchcock was the first, first. person we did pre-recording with for season two. So this is like way back early in the summer. She's been waiting so patiently for this episode. And we have been eagerly awaiting the uh, moment we could release it to you. So much patience from her, but this will be a good one. So we hope you enjoy this interview with Christina Hitchcock. It's so good to be here today with um, our distinguished guest, Dr. Christina Hitchcock. Uh, Christina, would you be willing to just tell us just a little bit about yourself, just just in general? We've, we've already heard your bio, but but how would you describe yourself? Uh, sure. Yeah, I live in South Dakota, and I'm a very I'm a proud South Dakotan. I'm happy to live here, and uh, I teach at the University of Sioux Falls. Uh, which I really love. I love teaching. I love my students. I love getting to find out what they're interested in and what they're learning and um, how they're growing. I think uh, 18 to 22, the typical college ages are such a great time in life when people are really starting to think and um, grow and learn and figure out what they want with themselves. And that, you know, I get to be a part of that for some of them is super fun and exciting for me. Um, I'm also married and I have two kids and uh, we live out of town and have ducks and bunnies and a dog and um which we love so there's a little snapshot oh that's wonderful that's what you know i i've been to south dakota this was several years ago now but i was absolutely blown away by how beautiful it is it's the great plains it's the prairie and i always tell people you know they they feel like it's plain they're used to mountains or something like that and i say that the feature in south dakota is the sky you got to look yes. at the sky that's 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 what's so pretty yes. so um yeah. the yeah. most amazing sunset i've ever witnessed i witnessed mm-hmm. in in south dakota just outside of hot springs and uh yes yeah yeah and west river of course has the black hills which are gorgeous and beautiful and um and not the prairie so i love both sides of south dakota oh, wonderful <laughs> we appreciate you joining us here today and as our listeners know we always try to start with a segment of watch read or listen what it is that we are we are watching reading or listening to blake dean um why don't you start us off what's what's new on your docket in one of those categories Sure. I just um, recently watched on Hulu uh, the documentary about Toni Morrison. And so I think it was made right, like it was released right before she passed away um, about a year, year and a half ago. 
Um, and I was so compelled, number one, just to learn about this, obviously, literary giant. Um, I hadn't read anything of hers up until that point, embarrassingly. Um, but then I promptly read The Bluest Eye following my viewing of the documentary. But um, I, the thing I was so compelled about was watching her be a mother, a single mother, while she's writing Pulitzer Prize winning novels. Um, and the thing that I loved the most was hearing how she only wrote for a certain number of hours in the morning and she never closed her door so that her boys never felt like outside of her writing, which I was like, kudos to you. Cause I think I would close my door and be like, give me, <laughs> give me three. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I just watched that streaming on Hulu and I highly, highly recommend it. What about you, Erin? Oh gosh. Yeah. That's it's, it's been an interesting summer, lots of reading, lots of watching and listening all around. But I will say these days I'm listening to a lot of bluegrass. I don't know what it is about summer that makes me just want to listen to. I love I love bluegrass music. And so summer really pulls that out. But I've also, you, you know, I listen to about 50 podcasts a week. And one of them that I just added to the mix is Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge podcast so i i you know big fan of hers and she's she's local to atlanta here where we are but um we've started a be the bridge group here at the college this summer and that it's it's just by the time this airs we'll have be a couple weeks into that um but uh the podcast and all these different resources can't recommend them enough so so i'm i'm i have to plug that for sure um and she's a new new york times bestseller so right on latasha morrison Yes, we, we, we love some Latasha Morrison. So, um, so Professor Hitchcock, will you tell us a little bit about what you are watching, reading, or listening to? So summer is my have fun with the watch, read, and listen thing. Um, so right now I am reading a book called Way of Kings, which is a huge fantasy novel by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, my son is a voracious reader, and up until he was about 10, I had read everything he had read, and now he's just way past me so I'm trying to read what he reads (laughs) so I so I know what he's reading and so we can talk about it so he read this trilogy it's three books that are each about 1200 pages long um during the month of May you know we're in quarantine and sheltering in place and he's just so I'm desperately trying to keep up and I'm about two-thirds of the way through the first one called Way of Kings and it's good if you like fantasy it's uh it's good world building it's good characters it's consistent worlds uh it's it's fun so I'm enjoying it and my son is patiently waiting for me to finish it so we can talk about it. I love it. that. <laughs> that is great. That is great. Well, speaking of reading and writing, um, both Blake and I are absolutely unashamedly fans of your book, The Significance of Singleness. And um, it, was, it was a big reference for what our listeners will remember from season one when we talked about it in the context of, of understanding dating and gender and how um, we learn and talk about that in the church. But um, we are huge fans of your book. And in discussing uh, the topic of marriage um and because gender roles in marriage are obviously a a huge topic of discussion um within uh, christian circles we feel that we absolutely cannot neglect the topic of singleness that it very much acts as a counterweight um to the discussion of marriage that uh and especially because in the age we're living in so many more of uh of our listeners and the people we know are engaged in in some some, I don't want to say season of singleness. I really hate that term, but, um, they're either getting married later or divorced or widowed. There's a, there's a lot more that we need to be thinking about as the church to help talk about this time of life. Um, not just in the, are you dating? How soon are you getting out of it? Feel. Um, and you have done such great work on this. Um, so I, I know Blake has, has many wonderful questions. So I just want to start though, just by, can you tell our listeners what, led you to study and write about the topic of singleness? What put that front and center for you? Yeah, I mean, I I think what interested me about this topic is, first of all, I was a single person in the church as an adult for a certain period of time. Obviously, I I just mentioned my son, so I'm not I'm I'm not single anymore. But I didn't get married until I was 30, and so I kind of think of myself as a single adult in the church from when I graduated from college until I got married when I was 30, so about eight years. And I just found that to be an extremely interesting experience and not at all what I expected from growing up in the church. And I was, you know, I was going to seminary and I was getting my PhD and I was getting two different jobs as a professor. Like, I felt like I was kind of 
growing into my own, both in the, in the world as a professional and as a Christian, like growing into a place where the church, I could be useful to the church. And I didn't feel like the church had any ability to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't feel like the church knew what to do with me. And the church was kind of regularly pushing me towards getting married. And I started to think, I feel like me getting married would solve their problem with me instead of some problem that I have myself, even though I wanted to, I mean, it wasn't like I didn't want to get married. I did want to get married and I did want to have kids, but I was so intrigued by how the church was responding to me. It was very different than how they had responded to me when I was in high school and in college, which seemed to be a very natural and good relationship that I had with the church during those times. But the minute I graduated from college and kind of didn't had hadn't wasn't on that prescribed pathway towards marriage and having children, my relationship with the church felt very awkward. And I felt like it was mostly the church's fault um, because I felt like I was still the same person. So um, so that really intrigued me. And I was like, what, what is going on here? So I started. So I was thinking about that a lot. But of course, I was also in seminary and working on my Ph.D. and writing a dissertation and getting a new job. And so I didn't I didn't concentrate on it. It was just there in the back of my head. But it was percolating. And after I got married, the interesting thing was it felt like the church just snapped back into place. They're like, oh. We know who you are. We know what category you fit into. We know what to do with you. And so that intrigued me even more, the kind of snapping back once I got married. And that was when I was like, there's something going on here. There's something worth exploring. This isn't just my kind of paranoid perception of how the church treats single people. The kind of snap snap back into place when I got married was was the thing that I thought, something's going on here. And then, of course, I, I was teaching college students and and hearing very similar stories from them. So finding out this wasn't just my personal experience, it was a more, a more broadly shared experience in the American evangelical church. Um, so I, I would say that's what, what provoked my interest at the beginning. I love that. There was a line in your book, um, in the beginning of your book, you're obviously introducing both your personal experience, but more so kind of setting up a paradigm of where we find ourselves before you analyze. And I was particularly compelled by um, a quote you said that the church, um, that we have the ch- as the church have granted singleness practical significance, but not theological significance. I wonder if you could, for those listening who haven't read your book, if you could explain that line and maybe expound on that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's the way the church has decided to deal with the, the problem of singleness and putting that in air quotes. Um, because, um, and, and, and they want to the church wants single people to feel welcome and to feel involved and to feel significant. Um, but they don't, I don't think the church has a good theology on which to do that. So the church has decided to, to kind of play up the, the practical benefits of singleness. What essentially what that means is that being single allows the theory, at least, is single people have more time and less commitments and therefore have more energy and more opportunities to kind of do the practical business of the church, whether it's leading worship or being in the nursery or leading a short-term mission trip or being a youth group leader or whatever it might be. You kind of uh, are, are in this time in your life when you're free from a spouse, free from children and all the commitments that we think that brings along with it. So you have lots of time, you have lots of energy, uh, you have lots of freedom, use that for the practical benefit of the church. But we don't have a way of talking about theological significance for the church. And what I mean by that is uh, something has theological significance when it tells us something about who God is or what God is doing or how we relate to those things, how we relate to what, who God is and how we relate to what God is doing. And so as an example, we give marriage theological significance all the time and we, and and rightly so. So don't hear me saying that's a bad bad thing. Um, Like for example, in Ephesians, Paul compares marriage to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage tells us something about who God is and what God is doing. And so marriage has not only very practical significance, which it does, and the church agrees with that, but it has theological significance. We don't have a way to talk about singleness having theological significance. We don't see it as being attached to who God is or what God is doing. Rather, we see it as a season through which a person kind of needs to needs to get through. Um, And during that time, they can find value and significance in their own lives by kind of pouring into the church in practical ways. But but their current situation isn't actually connected to who God is or what God is doing. And so, of course, that makes singleness feel very, 
purposeless. Uh, if I mean, especially in the long run, uh, it feels very hard. It feels disconnecting. It feels lonely because it is a state of being that that the American Evangelical Church has has largely conceded is is not connected to God and His purposes. Yes, that is. I love that. That is so well said. I've I've heard like I've I've read your book. I've I've actually seen seen some videos with you talking about this, and each time, it just really strikes me. I'm having conversations with my own students. And of course, right now, large topic of discussion is race and what's happening in this country and feeling the need to have the gospel continually ground these conversations so that they don't end up becoming disenfranchised into their own sort of paradigm and and understanding and, and thinking about what does we talk about, just like you said, marriage and what that has to do with the gospel and the reflection of Christ and who he is and what he's doing in the world but we haven't done that with singleness and um, it is such an important thing. And I would say, I wonder if ministers even, even th- think about, I, I think there's, there's probably a lot of um, information about how to talk to people about healthy marriages and how to preach that from the pulpit. But it feels like there's a, there's a lack of education and insight and in even how we're training ministers to be, um, to be that representation in the church, to be talking about this in the, in the paradigm of the gospel. Well, and I was also compelled a little bit after your um, initial introduction to the paradigm is the relationship that sex and singleness have. Thinking about ministers' preparation, at least as um, a young person growing up, it's like the only thing we really talked about singleness is how to stay, quote unquote, pure or how to remain faithfully celibate. I wonder if you could introduce our, our listeners to kind of the overemphasis on sex as you explore in your book, maybe it's relationship to autonomy, which I found deeply compelling. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, honestly, I think all of this, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking as someone who's who's come, I should clarify, someone who's been part of what has traditionally been called the American Evangelical Church. All of those words are deeply charged right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but until we find a better term, I'm using that term just to kind of know where I'm coming from and the audience that I'm thinking of. But I think uh, this conversation about marriage and singleness is at its root a, a conversation in the American Evangelical Church about sex and sexuality. And marriage is the, is the cover for that because, um, because we believe that, that sex is reserved for marriage. But when we talk about marriage, what we're really talking about is sex because that's the place where we get to have sex. And so, uh, I mean, it's my contention, it's my argument that the American evangelical church has essentially bought into hook, line, and sinker, the American secular sexual ethic, and then kind of covered that with this spiritual gloss that we call marriage. And so we we tell ourselves that our sexual ethic is genuinely different than the than the secular world. And the, the proof of that is supposed to be that we don't have sex until we get married and, and the secular world doesn't care about that. But I think the underlying assumptions are essentially the same. So in the book, I talk about an ethicist named Stanley Harawas, who is well worth reading. He was at Duke. Okay, yeah. so I can see I'm, I'm among fans yeah. here. Um, he was at Duke for a long time and at Notre Dame. And last I heard, he was a fellow at the University of Aberdeen, but he's well worth reading, Stanley Harawas. Um, and in a wonderful essay called Sex in Public, How uh, Christians Are Doing It, I think is the title of the, of the essay. <laughs> He identifies the sexual ethic in in kind of secular America as having two strands. We either have realists, which are people who say essentially, look, human beings are essentially animals who are programmed to have sex. And so they're going to have it one way or the other. Let's just make it as safe as possible. So that's kind of the safe sex movement. Um, And then the other group are romantics. Uh, And these are people who say sex is good and right as long as two people love each other. Um, And love can be defined by those two people in whatever way way they want. But that's that's the thing that makes sex legitimate. And and Hawass says that at the root of both of these ways of understanding sex is, is a belief in individualism and autonomy. So in the realist view, you know, I'm just a kind of pre-programmed to have sex um, and so it's up to me as an individual to decide when and where to do that and with whom and in what way. Um, it's going to happen one way or the other. It's just up to my own individual choices and preferences and desires for how that's going to work itself out. And then in the romantic view, this feeling of love is what makes sex legitimate, but only the individual can authenticate that feeling. I don't know what you're feeling. Only you know what you're feeling. Only you can authenticate this feeling that legitimizes sex. 
And so at the root of both of them is a sense of deep autonomy and individualism. And that is the thing that makes sex legitimate. Of course, we live um, in a world that is highly, highly politicized um, sex and sexual acts and, and sexuality. And the, the overriding mantra in America, I would say, is kind of my body, my choice. Um, which we see in the abortion movement, but I think it, it applies to sex in general. Um, as long as I have made a free independent decision and I have not coerced anyone else, this isn't anybody's business except for my own. In other words, I have my own free private right to do this. And of course, the, the great American virtue is freedom and liberty. Like that's the thing that makes Americans Americans, right? And so we have attached sexuality to individualism and autonomy our great American virtues. And so we've said, if you want to be a true American and a true human being, you have to have sex uh, on your own terms and in your own way. And so, so our sexual activity proclaims that we are true, fully formed, not only Americans, but I would say even humans. And my argument is that the church has actually bought into that, but kind of put a biblical and spiritual gloss on it. The biblical gloss comes mostly from Genesis 1 and 2, where we've attached creation to sex. In other words, human beings are created in order to have sex. So once again, so, so God's whole, whole purpose for creating us is this sexual activity that's going to achieve certain goods and ends. So again, we have this kind of mandate towards uh, towards sexuality, not towards sex, towards sex itself. And, um, and then marriage is the kind of theological veneer that we put on top of it that legitimizes the whole thing. But nonetheless, we're still, I mean, you, if you read Christians on this, you're going to see that they're just falling either very solidly into the realist camp or into the romantic camp. And I just see Christians easily falling into those two categories without any bumps or obstacles along the way. And so I think what we really need to do is re-examine our most basic assumptions about what it means to be fully human and how our sexuality is related to that, as opposed to just saying, well, we save sex for marriage and that's what makes us different. And that, that means we have a totally different sexual ethic. I'm not at all convinced that's true. Oh, absolutely. You, you, you really, I think, hit the nail on the head. And I, I love this because I'm hoping our listeners are having these just like mind blowing explosion moments where stuff is just like coming off of them. Um, because I know for me, uh, this, this was a huge um, leap in, in my own perspective uh, by understanding that so much of what entangles us in these topics is because of these underlying culturally based assumptions um, about sex. And so then we think of uh, value and people are placing value on themselves as single or married people. And, and then if, if sex is good or not good or choices, and we're making, we're making the conversation about these things and the church is buying in and, and continuing to have that conversation um, along with the secular world. It's basically the same thing with just sort of different, like you said, veneers on it. Um, but I also love, and, and this is something I heard you say before, which is, the fact that we are so bent on choice seems to be paramount, but we don't, we're not okay when that choice is somebody saying, I'm going to be celibate. Which is really ironic because you would think, well, I mean, if it's all about individualism and autonomy, then we should just, if someone doesn't want to have sex for whatever reason, um, that should, that should be fine. But that certainly isn't the way um, the American culture treats it. My feeling is that, that there's this common sense that in America, in America, kind of being a, a virgin uh, after a certain age is considered strange, odd. There's probably something wrong with that person that having sex would would fix all that stuff, mm. right? Like you just need to get laid type of thing. Um, <laughs> not to be too crude. No, or you're anything. fine. Uh, you know, and you can think of the movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is of course meant to be, I mean, the title is meant to capture our attention because it sounds so much like an oxymoron to us. Like, mm. Do 40-year-old virgins exist? I mean, like besides nuns, do they? And and the whole movie kind of is going through this and showing how the, the main character uh, needs to have sex, but have it on his own terms, not on his friend's terms. But he still needs to have sex in order to be kind of fully formed, fully human, fully enlightened, which happens at the end of the movie when he has sex on his own terms. And so, um, and and then if, and again, that just follows right over into the Christian community where the idea that someone would want to be single um, or would be even even if they don't want to be single but choose to be uh, obedient and content and joyful in their singleness um, 
is very strange. And, and so you hear lots of Christian leaders talking about an extended adolescence, and that's always connected with not getting married. Mm. Um, and not, not necessarily living at home in your parents' basement and not having a job. It's not getting married, not having children. That's this extended adolescence. I hear, you know, again, evangelical Christian leaders talking about men who just want to go to work and make a bunch of money and come home and play video games and don't want to, you know, and, and again, it's this rejection of marriage that shows that they're childish, they're immature, they're whatever. Um, and they're, and it's kind of their fault that women aren't able to get married and have kids the way they're supposed to, because we have these, these young men who are just extending their adolescence and not caring about the, their, the importance of marriage. And so again, we see those people not as people who might actually be thinking, how can my life be lived for the kingdom? But as people who are actually rejecting their role in the kingdom, rejecting the work that God has given them and are being selfish and self-centered and all of that. So we, I mean, we view those people a little, the, the secular world views them as odd or weird or strange, although we can do that too. Um, we tend to especially uh, think of them as, as selfish or uh, strange or odd or something right, like that. Right. And we diagnose marriage as the yes, cure yeah. for maturity. Yeah, a, a marriage is kind of, uh, is, is kind of the, the very quick check to say, I'm normal, I'm a regular person, you can trust me. Hmm. Um, and extended singleness is a sign that says, hmm, that person's a little weird, I, I should be a little suspicious until I find out more. Which is weird because Christ, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think even, even if that's not explicitly said, I've, that um, at least in certain spaces feels implicitly um, implied. I wonder, and I think you do a really good job of um, also not only diagnosing the problem, but also maybe offering a uh, re-envisioning of a theology of singleness. I wonder if you could talk about that, uh, specifically the connection between whether celibacy or marriage and eschaton. I found that conversation really compelling in your book. I mean, I really do think, I mean, I would say there's a, the most um, outspoken group in, in American evangelicals in favor of, of marriage are part of a movement called the marriage mandate movement. And they are very, very clear in saying that singleness is unnatural. And they, and they use this as, a, as their argument for everyone should get married because singleness is unnatural. It's not what God intended. And there's a, there's a sense in which I'm more than willing to concede that point, that singleness is unnatural. Uh, the problem with the marriage mandate folks is that they're assuming that Christians are supposed to live natural lives. Mm. Um, and I think that's their big mistake. Christians are supernatural people. The church is a supernatural institution. So of course, having sex is absolutely natural. We're not people who just do whatever is natural. We're people who have been taken up into the supernatural. And what does that mean? We're not constrained by the natural anymore. So saying that something is natural doesn't win you any arguments in the Christian church. You have to go farther than that. And so I do think that the argument that the theological basis for singleness is eschatology. It is God's future um, because the supernatural nature of the church and of individual Christians is that we are from the future. We are people who live according to resurrection. And resurrection is a future uh, event that in Jesus Christ has broken into the present. Amen. So God's future is mm. breaking into the present uh, in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the, you know, he's the first fruits from the dead, which means, of course, that there's going to be more. He isn't the only one who's going to be resurrected. He is the first one who's going to be resurrected. And so Jesus' resurrection is a sign of what is, what is in store for all of us. And so it's in the resurrection that we find our own identity and our own understanding of who we are, both as individuals and as the church. So Blake, as you said, I really do think that the theological basis for singleness is the eschaton. It is God's future. And, and singleness, I think the theological significance of singleness is that it points us towards that future. And, and in my book, I talk about several ways in which it does this. I mean, I think the three basic ways are that singleness reminds us that the church Church is our first family, not our biological mm. family, even though, of course, a biological family is deeply important and wonderful and a gift. Um, but the church really is our first family, and Jesus is very clear about that. Second, it points us to the resurrection, that the resurrection is the way in which we relate not only to God, but to each other. The resurrection is the way in which we have and do life now. And third, singleness points us to 
the place that we should put our trust and hope. Mm. So often sex and the benefits that come from sex, like marriage and children, are the, are the place we put our hope. Like, you know, this person loves me even if the rest of the world has rejected me. You know, I'm going to have kids, which means even though one day I'll be dead, my kids will go on. You know, so sex and marriage and family are kind of our economic and social security in a difficult and dangerous world, let's face it. Whereas singleness says, no, actually, God is my security. He's my economic security, my social security, my political security. My, it's in him that I find safety, that I find both present safety and a future hope and a future security. Singleness requires us to say that uh, in a much clearer way. So I think, I think singleness finds its theological value in pointing us towards the future and helping us see now in our present, God's future breaking in. So singleness, this unnatural state of being, no doubt about it, is, is at home in the church because the church is not a natural institution. It is not a present-oriented institution. It is a future-oriented institution. Preach, preach. I love it. I get to have church. Oh gosh, there's so many things I want to to dive into on that. But but one thing I want to to make sure I mention, um, because it's something I know our listeners will probably be interested in, is that as men and women, and something Blake and I tackle on the regular and trying to understand the beauty of these two sexes in the economy of God and, and moving forward missionally in the church relationships and sex and and status get really get muddy when we 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 are are looking at this and i am interested in your perspective because we know how marriage will often uh, create interesting dichotomies between between how we understand men and how we view women and, and and values and values in the church and some of the things you touched on but in singleness in some ways we sort of lump everyone together whether you're a man or a woman it's like oh that's <laughs> that's a little crazy but um but i also know just just from talking with even some of my my single friends who are wrestling through this that there are also these sneaky little dichotomies that there are different rules for single men and different rules for single women or how we view them. Can you just just riff a little bit about your understanding of how we understand gender for our single community and what that looks like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And of course, everybody's going to have their own personal experiences. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll speak from my own experience as well as observation. I think that question can get so, so tricky and so yucky really fast. But my experience is that we tend to be suspicious of single men who are past a certain age, like maybe they're pedophiles. I mean, I don't know, or probably they're gay. I mean, like those are the two reasons you you don't get married and have normal sex with a with a normal woman. I mean, that must explain it. Or and and single women, I think we tend to feel sorry for. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, probably there's something wrong with you, but maybe not. Maybe you know the question that I often got asked when I was single was, what's wrong with the young men around here? Like. You know, you know, like, it's too bad. I mean, you're obviously a nice young woman. There must be something wrong with them. I'm so sorry you're surrounded by such idiots that nobody will ask you out on a date, which of course kind of walks you back to maybe that there's actually something wrong with me. So men, I think we tend to be a little bit suspicious of, like the idea of hiring a single, a man who's single to be a pastor is very worrisome. People don't want to do that. Uh, because again, a wife kind of validates that person. He's safe. He's having sex with me. He's not going to want to have sex with anybody else. You know, that your your young women and your children are safe. And women, I think, are generally kind of, we feel sorry for them. At the same time, on kind of a different level, I do think that especially in in more conservative American evangelical churches, where there are more strictly defined sex roles and women aren't allowed to, to be in certain leadership roles, um, that women have discovered that marriage is a way to kind of sometimes circumvent those rules. Like if I'm married to a pastor, I can have a certain role in the church that I couldn't have otherwise, or if I'm married to an elder or something like that. And so singleness becomes even more of a spiritual burden to women who want to be actively involved in the church, but who have kind of figured out that one of the primary ways women are involved in their local church is through, uh, through their husband, so if you don't have a husband, it's kind of a double whammy as a woman because you, um, you're kind of, people worry about you and wonder what's wrong with you. But also you don't have 
an access into the church. Like I do things via my husband. Uh, my husband's an elder. So when he goes and visits people and prays for them, I go with him. Or my husband's the pastor. So, you know, I help lead worship or whatever. I think we, we're all familiar with these kind of teams where the husband has the official role in the church, but the wife is often, to use that traditional King James uh, translation is, is a good help me. And so I think women often find their role in the church truncated when they're not married. And, and the only way to solve that is to get married. That said, I don't, I, I think that's true for men too. I think men who want to be involved in the ministry of the church and are 40 or 50 and have never been married are met with a lot of suspicion and wonder if they're safe to have in ministry. So I think, I think that being single, I think has this kind of um, subconscious, the church subconsciously limits what we what we think single people are able and willing and and safe to do in the church. Yeah, no, I th- I think that's very well said. And we we had a friend on the podcast season one who mentioned that she was approached by a campus minister in college who offered her a scholarship, and the contingency of the scholarship is that she would is committing to one day marrying a minister. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, true, true. First of all, how can you ever possibly agree to that? Like, you have no idea what's going <laughs> to There's so, there are layers, oh, wow. right? Layers of I problems. mean, every time I think I've heard the most extreme example, then I hear and another one. And I'm like, that can't be true. <laughs> yes, yes. And yet and it yet is. And yet it is, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's it, yeah, I, 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 that one will stick in my mind forever. But, but it does, it, it speaks to so many things about how we value people. Um, how we value in in terms of, of understanding are our status married or not married and roles in the church. And I think you address this very well. I won't do any spoilers for listeners. You need to go buy the book and you need to read the chapters on Perpetua and Lottie Moon and um, Macrina, Macrina, Macrina. I never know how to say it. I say Macrina, Macrina but okay. you know, she's from 300. Exactly. So we just say exactly. Her and, and to see <laughs> the intersections of um, understanding status as a married or non-married woman and how that engages with with roles in the church and in the kingdom just in general is i i love when i got to that part of the book i just page after page was just loving it um but i but it does these these things they can't be we can't just talk about singleness or marriage or roles in the church like all these things infused together um so if we're trying to bring that gospel perspective it's going to influence all those conversations absolutely and i I think, too, something that's important to, I don't know, to at least say out loud is that even if they don't take um, form in maybe those extreme scenarios where someone is explicit, I almost think it's better when someone explicitly says, go and marry a minister, rather than it being an assumption, right? Um, but this is the, but when our gender roles are informed solely um through marriage and hierarchy in marriage, which is a whole other conversation, yet is introduced in this conversation, um, then women automatically um, don't have access to those places. Um, And we can debate and argue whether that's theologically um, valid or not, but that's a place we have to start and say, well, what happens when you're not married? What does that then mean about your femaleness or your maleness? Um, but for the context of women in leadership, like definitely your femaleness. And as Aaron mentioned, um, I, admittedly, I am a perpetua super fan. I'm a Krina fan and I am a new introduct, like in, like a new inductee to Lottie Moon. Um, so I wonder if you could very briefly, you say in the book that, um, the theology of evangelical Americans has suffered without the narratives provided by people such as these three women. I wonder, um, and you can do this however you want. You can pick one, you can touch all three, but I wonder why these women and what, briefly, what do they offer us? Yeah, well, let me say, first of all, Blake, that I really appreciate that you enjoyed the three of them because one of the regular criticisms of my book is why don't you have a male uh, example? Men aren't going to really like your book. (laughs) And my response is always, well, I'm so sorry that men can't get anything out of a woman's life. But um, so... (laughs) Because, of course, I've learned so much from the male uh, saints in the church, and I I hope that men can learn something from the the female saints in the church. So I love hearing you say that. I appreciate that um, because I love all three of them as well. And I just think they're amazing. We we were actually going to name our, I really wanted to name our daughter Perpetua, but my husband kept pointing out that there are no good nicknames like Perp 
Oh, you're right. Pet. Yes, you're right. So like, true. So I was like, okay, you're right. I mean, you're like, right. what? Are, he he was always like, what are the second graders on the playground gonna call her? And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. you've got it. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but but I love Perpetua, and I really really wanted to name my daughter Perpetua, but got talked out of it for good reason. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, so how did I choose those three? So, um, so, uh, you know, sometimes also people say, well, you know, those are kind of extreme examples and, um, they lived extraordinary lives, which of course the three of them did. I mean, that's why we remember them, you know, 1700 years later, 150 years later, like that's why they're still in the history books because they lived extraordinary lives. But of course, an extraordinary life, um, is always a sign of what an ordinary life can be. Um, and, um, and, 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 and I don't know that Macrina uh, or Perpetua or Lottie Moon felt that in the moment that they were living extraordinary lives, they were just trying to live according to the call of Christ at their given moment, which is what each one of us is asked to do. Um, and that might turn into something that history remembers and it might not. And I don't think Jesus cares that much about that part of it. Um, and I, I'm not sure Perpetua or, or Lottie Moon or Macrina cared that much about it, which is why I think their lives are, are instructive to us. Um, it's interesting how I came about using those two, and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction to the book, but um, I was asked um, quite a few years ago, I guess maybe about 10 years ago now, to uh, lead a Sunday school class at a church that I'm not a part of, but a friend of mine was the pastor there. And they were going through a book about how Christianity called something about how Christianity changed the world. And each chapter was uh, about how Christianity influenced some part of society, like medicine or education or something like that, and how Christianity influenced that. And so they had people from their church to teach each chapter, uh, except for the chapter on um, feminism and women. They needed somebody to teach that. <laughs> so, and nobody, apparently nobody in their church was qualified. So uh, so my friend asked me and I said, I don't want to, like, I'm not an expert on, on, on gender studies or women. Like, that's not, that's not my thing. I've never studied them. My only qualification is that I'm a woman. He was like, well, yeah, that's basically what we're looking for. <laughs> so I said, oh, fine. He was like, I, please, I'm begging you. I can't find anyone else to do it. So I was like, fine, I'll do it. So I read the chapter and it was terrible. Um, basically, it kind of said uh, Christianity is good for women because Christians like to be nice. And and now look in America, women get to vote. So probably that's Christianity's influence. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't quite that bad. Sure. I'm being oversimplifying. Sure. But but it kind of said Christians like to be nice and Christians like to be nice to women, which, first of all, isn't a theological argument at, at all. <laughs> and second of all, there you can come up with hundreds of counter examples to that. So um, so I was like, OK, forget the book. I'll just do this on my own. And so I set myself the task of asking, is Christianity good for women? And if so, in what way? So I assumed the answer to the first one was yes. And then struggled to answer the second question. Like I really genuinely started to feel nervous. Like, why can't I figure out why Christianity is good for women? And it all kind of clicked into place for me. Um, interestingly enough, when I was at a, a conference where I heard a Muslim woman, an American Muslim woman who is a professor uh, make an argument for modern day uh, Islamic polygamy um, and basically saying that um, marriage is a spiritual requirement and having children is a spiritual requirement. And if you have fewer men than women in your community, then you have to practice polygamy so that women can meet those spiritual requirements. And a big light bulb went off in, on, you know, over my head. And I thought, that's it. That's the difference. Women aren't required to get married in Christianity. And so I went straight to 1 Corinthians 7, um, the, the kind of Paul's manifesto on singleness, and said, this is it, that in Christianity, men and women relate to God in exactly the same way, through the person Jesus Christ. And so Paul thinks, Paul doesn't just think men should be single, Paul thinks women should be single, which is this radical, mm -hmm. radical thing to say in the first century, because women were so dependent on fathers, husbands, sons. Without a man in one, at least one of those categories, you are in big trouble, generally speaking, in the first century world. There are exceptions, but not very many. And so I just feel like it's amazing that Paul wants women to be single, because he actually thinks that their status with God is only based on their relationship with Jesus, and that Jesus is able to care for them, even in first, first century Roman world, um, without the help of a father, husband, or son. 
In other words, God is powerful to save and God is powerful to sustain our lives in whatever way he chooses. So women, be single. It's totally fine. You've got nothing to worry about. So I was like, this is it. This is why, this is why Christianity is good for women because God sees, views women in, in just the same way as men, which traditionally the world in all cultures does not do because women are physically weaker than men. I mean, that's basically the reason. And they, and they get pregnant for nine months at a time, which makes them even weaker and more in need of support. And that's just the biology of it. So, but God says, again, he supersedes the natural and the supernatural flows in and, and takes its place and makes things different. And so for this Sunday school class, I was like, well, I'll use some examples. And so the examples I came up with were Macarena, Perpetua, and Lottie Moon. Um, and so I was using these three single people to make a point about uh, women and, and gender roles. And when it came time for, and I was still thinking about this book, and when it came time to write the book, I was like, I bet I can take those three examples and just reverse it and say, so here I was saying, singleness tells us something about uh, gender roles in the church. And I thought, I can just reverse that and I can say their femaleness highlights something important about singleness. Because especially in their time and place, being a single woman was extraordinary and potentially quite dangerous and difficult. And so it's not that everything I say in the book doesn't apply to single men, it absolutely does. But the fact that women are doing this highlights how much it is the work of God and the work of the future breaking into our present, that it is true even for women, which means it's true for everybody. If God can do this for Macrina in 350 AD, he can do it for anywhere, anyone at any time. Um, and so that's how I, I came to those three women. Plus, I just love them. And anytime I get to talk about them is is a good day. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I love that because I, I grew up I grew up Southern Baptist. We did uh, Girls in Action. And so we learned as much as we possibly could about every missionary there ever was. And Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong were that these were like the pinnacles and they my indoctrination into their accomplishments is what was such a shock for me a few years later when I learned that I would never receive a call to do anything in, in, in the church office. And, and that was really sort of dissonant to me because I was like, wow, I, I grew up learning about these women who did amazing things. And, and so, well, that's a whole other conversation. But that's when, when I saw Lottie Moon was in the book, I thought, oh, yes, yes, this is great. Yeah, Lottie Moon is one of the most subversive people in the Southern Baptist yes. tradition, in my opinion, yeah. mm -hmm. wonderfully subversive, yeah. um, where every little girl and boy learns about Lottie Moon and you have the Lottie Moon Christmas mm -hmm. offering. And then when you grow up and kind of learn how the church thinks about women, you're like, but, but Lottie, but Lottie Moon, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> yes, yes. That doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's, yeah, for me, there was a lot to unpack there. I was like, so we're okay with women preaching and setting up churches and doing these things with foreign people that we deem oh so maybe this maybe it's not just a sex issue maybe it's a race issue and then it just began going from there but so oh yeah yes. yeah but uh, that's yeah. that's that's definitely you know a part of, of of my story but i find your book um so refreshing i i have to i have to mark the time because um I think we have so much more we want to ask you about and can say. And so, Christina, we're, we're just going to have to have you back on the podcast at some point. That would be lovely. I would love it. So thank you. But before you go, I wonder if you could let our listeners know, like, are you working on anything new or are you just taking care of your students, which is a worthy and noble career goal as well? That's a great question. So I'm not working on a book right now. You know, so with the pandemic, of course, everything has gone to online learning, which I must admit is a bit of a struggle for me. So, <laughs> so that is taking a lot of my attention, figuring out how to teach online. But I do, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a short article right now on how Quakers used essentially the marketplace to deal with the problem of slavery. Quakers were opposed to slavery. They were the one of the only denominations that North and South agreed that slavery was wrong and reprehensible. And so how they use the marketplace to impact um, on slavery, which I think is, of course, timely and interesting in, in this moment. And so that's that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And we do. We would love to have you back on the podcast again. Um, but just appreciate having you uh, today and, and enriching us and our listeners um, with this topic. And uh, so um, so thank you, Christina, for, for coming on Mutuality Matters today. I loved talking with oh, yeah. Dr. Hitchcock. Number one, because it was the first time that we had had someone other Our, than ourselves. Yeah. 
us Mm -hmm. or our friends um on so getting to talk to someone we didn't know and she was not only the most lovely but also thoughtful and helpful this was a really important um episode for me because i um i think i mentioned it in the episode a little bit and i've mentioned it previously that negotiating what how we theologically understand marriage versus singleness was actually the gateway drug for me into gender theology is it wasn't, it wasn't an instinct about men and women particularly, but instead um, seeing that we didn't have a way to understand women if they were not married or proximal to um, a husband and that our models of leadership were formed around this. So I loved getting to talk to Dr. Hitchcock because I thought it really, um, gave some voice to some things that I had already been working on, and it was a very important oh, contribution um, to. I think it's central to gender theology. Yes. I really do. I think it's one of the most convincing. I agree. Ways I think in. the way we discuss singleness is going to be a game changer, an orienting piece towards how we understand all these other intimate relationships, because things like family, marriage, friendship, all really revolve around this issue of singleness and if we have poor theology in this area it will taint all of those things and how we exist as a church community and i think that's what we see we see that that degradation and and uh oh christina hitchcock was just so great because i love that moment where she talks about how we love freedom and we love autonomy and we love the ability to choose unless somebody chooses to be celibate and then it's not okay and then we don't know what to do with it and i think this 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 reveals, I think, three things to me. An anemic theology yep. of marriage itself and what the missional understanding of yeah. marriage is. Go back a couple episodes if you don't know what I'm talking about. Number two, an anemic vision of what it means to be the body of Christ. Number three, an anemic vision of maleness and femaleness. Um, and I think that Jesus gives man such not only dignity, but requires this conversation to happen since he was clearly single right and so pushes us into that pushes us into that conversation with not only purpose but urgency in certain ways yeah i totally agree so friends we hope that you enjoyed this episode listen to it many many times christina hitchcock is very smart and had so many wonderful things to say and if you are not a patron you don't know but there was a ton of bonus footage that we got with christina hitchcock and it is for our patrons on our Patreon. And guys, if there was ever a moment to become a patron, now is definitely the time because you are going to want to hear sort of side Mm -hmm. B of of our discussion with Christina Hitchcock. Um, So it's really easy to go be a patron, but just want to encourage you for this episode. Definitely. So please go get a copy of The Significance of Singleness. It's so good and we commend it to you. But more than that, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed our podcast, we would love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. We would love some feedback and we love connecting to other listeners. Also, if you were really into the podcast and are really interested in Christina Hitchcock's work, you should join our Patreon. You'll receive early released episodes of the podcast and varying additional content from your favorite co-hosts. You should go check that out. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley, who truly makes it all happen. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening.